Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is my pleasure to be able to introduce Robert Hormatz, Associate uh, Vice Chairman of Kissinger Associates. Bob Hormatz joins us here. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you for coming in. I'm just going to make you walk down memory lane for just a little bit sure. because I note that you went to the Castle on the Hill. This is in Baltimore. Yes. It's called Baltimore City College. It's not really a college, but it prepares you uh, for college, correct? Yes, it does. Okay, so I'm going to take you back into the time machine just a little bit because in our debate about interest rates and the state of the economy, I keep hearing these two sides. One is nothing's changed. The business cycle, the credit cycle remains in place. It doesn't matter whether the world has advanced in terms of technology. And then there's the other camp, which says, no, no, it's all different now. Everybody has access to all kinds of information on an instantaneous basis. You can start a business with nothing more than an idea and a mobile phone and an Internet connection. And as a result, the cost of money should be a lot lower than it used to be because people don't walk around with hundreds of dollars in cash anymore. As someone that participated in a variety of political experiences, whether they be in the administration, at the Treasury. Tell us, from your perspective, are things truly different now when it comes to money in the economy? Well, I think there is a still consistent notion that the business cycle works and kicks in, and from time to time we're going to see ups and downs in the market, ups and downs in the economy, and that hasn't been repealed. And we've seen that with greater frequency, in fact, over the last several decades. I think what is different is the following. One, information is much more widely disseminated and much more more quickly available than in in the past. Second, that more people have uh, access to it. Third, that goods are more competitive because you can buy and sell things on the internet. So that does hold uh, the rate of inflation down. But what's even more important than all this is the pace of change. We went from the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution. It was over a period of many, many decades. We went from the industrial revolution to the uh, information or the services revolution. Uh, that was a relatively slow process. Now we're seeing the the acceleration of change so that it's much more difficult for people who have jobs on the factory floor to get jobs in the information area. So the, uh, the degree to which the economy has to adjust and the intensity of the process and the speed of the adjustment process is very difficult. And when you add increased productivity, increased technology, increased globalization, the pace of change is so much more rapid than in the past. And 
and the ability to adjust is so much more difficult for communities and for many individuals. All right. Now, I'm wondering if you could apply that same perspective because you previously were the vice chairman of Goldman Sachs International, also uh, ambassador, deputy U.S. trade representative. Apply that same thinking to the Chinese economy and culture because that pace of change that you just described has taken maybe 100 years in the United States. It has been compressed into about a dozen years in China. That's exactly right. In the last couple of trips I've had there, really the last three or four weeks, you can just see the, the pace of innovation accelerating almost before your very eyes. And that creates huge opportunities for China. It also surprises Americans that China, which 40 years ago was a very, very labor-intensive economy producing shoes and apparel, is now producing artificial intelligence, quantum computing, um, very, very sophisticated uh, new automobiles, a whole range of things that are very competitive to the United States. And this really happened over a very short period of time. And it shocked Americans. And many of these are not just helping the economy to advance, but they have strategic purposes as well. Understood. But do they also face the same difficult challenges of moving hundreds of thousands of workers that are in factories now that face the same issues magnified that U.S. workers have been facing? Absolutely. They face two big demographic issues. One is um, the, the workers have to change from labor-intensive uh, labor intensive economy now to a technology-intensive, innovative-intensive economy. That is very challenging. The other is they face a, democratic, a demographic challenge of moving people from cities, mm-hmm. uh, from countryside into the cities. And they have to build up these new cities, these new high-tech cities, and people who are used to growing up in the farms in the rural areas now have to live in a wholly yeah. different urban environment in apartment buildings. There is a huge sociological disruption to the kind of demographic change that the Chinese are facing. Were, were you ever part of a government shutdown? Did you oh, enjoy yes. not seeing a paycheck? Um, where the shutdowns occurred when I was in Washington, I was considered to be in a position that was... Uh, indispensable. You were indispensable. I I was labeled that. I'm I'm, I'm sure I was not Explain to our national audience, what's a shutdown actually like in Washington? A lot of people who are expecting to go to work don't go to work. A lot of people who don't go to work don't get paid. And they need the paycheck. Now, there's a lot. But they do get paid eventually because with every every shutdown, the Congress has mandated that all pay for furloughed workers would be paid. They do get paid. They get paid with a lag. I think that's the big difference. And there's an uncertainty about it. Yeah, but in French Hill... Of, of Little Rock came out with an immediate note. He will not take pay from the government as a congressman uh, because he thinks the whole thing's absurd. And you were one of the anointed few that got a paycheck, right? Well, because I had national security jobs. Sure. And national security jobs do tend to be paid, and people want you to show up because you've got to 
deal with issues. But you uh, also are working in a town where a lot of people, and I would also add, uh, it's Washington, but there are a lot of people who work for the federal government outside of Washington in various parts of the country. And they they get paid, but the but the interruption yeah. and the uncertainty I think is very troublesome. Yeah. Moreover, people expect the government to provide certain services to them, and when the government doesn't right. provide it, uh, people who pay taxes don't get yeah. what they expect to get from the government. Robert Hormitz, thank you so much. Do you have a book this year? I mean, no, no I do not. I'd if like you to, get off the airplane and start writing a book. I think I should do something about There's um, nothing to write about. <laughs> my experience. That's right. <laughs> what would I write about? Robert Hormetz, thank you so much. Of course, with Kissinger Associates. Thrilled to have him in here on this Christmas Eve. Bloomberg has 148,000 employees or something like that worldwide. And I would suggest the busiest person on the block today is Margaret Taleb. She's our White House correspondent spearheading our coverage of this original administration. Margaret, I want to give you an open question. You've been with us a number of times today. What will you and your team write about today? You're going to go into a meeting at the best food court in Bloomberg in Washington and you're going to say, what are we going to write about? What is that item that, that matters right now? Well, you said the, busy, the busiest person uh, in Washington might be me, but I think it's certainly Steve Mnuchin right now. And I think uh, as we go forward, we're looking at uh, these questions about how long is the shutdown going to last? What's going to happen? But really, the question is, how is all of this going to impact the economy? And that is where the rubber meets the road, right? That is why Mnuchin is working to calm banks, to ease investors. It's why the president is trying to, uh, without actually saying himself that he doesn't want to um, get rid of Jay Powell's uh, allowing Mnuchin to go out there and do that for him uh, because there's an understanding that as yeah. long as the shutdown goes on, as long as there is an uncertainty, it may affect um, the markets and it may affect the economy. And for President Trump, that is crucial to his ability to govern right. as he heads into the second half of his term with Democrats in control of the House. One of the things that Pim and I are advantaged by is we've got the Bloomberg here, the terminals and all the news flow. And Margaret, one of the first things I went to in the why are we negative 13, why are yields in, et cetera, et cetera, was I, I did NI Turkey, which is the Turkish flow out of the Levant, out of Turkey, out of Syria. There's no, I want to be clear, folks, I don't see any headlines there, but what's the immediacy of Trump Erdogan and the focus in the last 48 hours over the Kurds? It's it's a really interesting question because President Trump did two things when he sort of announced his Syria policy and then the follow-up phone call with Erdogan over the last couple of days. And one is to say that he trusts Erdogan to go in there and handle ISIS. But the other is to talk about how his his desire and, and new goal now of increased trade with Turkey. And I think, you know, what we need to see play out here is what the reaction is really going to be after a couple of days to the impact of this. Uh, Erdogan has not been the most reliable partner to the United States, but President Trump has put the U.S. lot in with Turkey now at this point. And uh, on the other balance side of the equation is uh, not just Brett McGurk, but of course, Jim Mattis's departure and how this is going to affect our relationships with uh, France and our relationships with uh, Western allies in the coalition. Margaret, does the president have time on his side, specifically when Good it relates question. to the shutdown? 
president thinks that he does because the president says that he wants this fight with the Democrats, that he thinks when Nancy Pelosi is in charge of the House uh, that uh, it will really be the Democrats' fault here. But uh, uh, Pelosi and Chuck Schumer understand that if they're willing to buckle down and hold their position, they'll have much more power when they're actually in power than they do in these last waning days of this outgoing Congress. So I think, you know, the president, uh, either because he has to look for the silver lining or because he really believes this, uh, thinks that he'll be acquitted uh, once this goes forward. But um, the reality is once Democrats actually have control of the House, uh, they will have the ability to put the brakes on um, on the president's agenda more than they do now. Okay, but they'll have that ability twinned with the public's dislike and distaste for the rancorous behavior yeah. of both Democrats and Republicans. How will they deal with that? They own the future, and they also own the results. That's it. And that's always the nature of a shutdown, right? This game of political chicken and, and who can hold the posture the best and, and who is kind of whose argument <laughs> can prevail. I think that's why we've seen the vice president, even as the president insists on, uh, you know, this fuller funding request for his wall project. That's why you've seen the vice president trying to be up on the Hill running interference to try to find yeah. a middle ground, a compromise. But so far, the middle ground that the president's willing to back right. uh, is for than the middle ground the, pres- the Democrats are willing to yield. Margaret, you've been with us so much today that if you want to come over and watch Home Alone 1, please <laughs> Again? come on over. How many times are you going to watch this please movie? Come, <laughs> I insist, come over and I don't know what's in the refrigerator. He also has the original, uh, the original print of It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, we so do. You we can, can inflict that on Margaret. I, I think well. that may be what Steve Mnuchin is watching. It, what, what's amazing with Margaret Tolev is I can say this. Jimmy Stewart. You know, it's a wonderful life. I, I, I know translated who into Bulgarian. It's unbelievable. <laughs> really? With the subtitles. With the subtitles <laughs> yes. as well. Really goes. Margaret, thank you so much for your work this year and for Yeoman's Duty here on, uh, your Woman's Duty, I should say, on Christmas Eve as well. Margaret Tolov is our chief Washington, uh, White House correspondent uh, with just terrific perspective as well. president, as everyone knows, has publicly criticized actions taken by the Federal Reserve. Indeed, it's even created a bit of a gossip, I guess what you would call it, a gossip network talking about the tenure of the head of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, here to help us understand the dynamics that exist between the executive, between the legislative and the Federal Reserve is Mark Spindell. He is the head of Potomac River Capital, and he is also the co-author of the book, The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. Mark Spindell, thank you very much for being with us. Do you believe that someone in the White House has made the case that firing or forcing out Jerome Powell as the head of the Federal Reserve will bring on the very activity when it comes to interest rates and asset prices that the president is upset about and connects to the current action of the Fed? In other words, he'd be bringing on even worse activity by having Mr. Powell exit the Federal Reserve. Uh, good morning, Tom. Good morning, Pim. And uh, happy holidays to both of you and everyone. Thank you again for inviting me this morning. Uh, Pim, directly, I think you're, you're spot on. Um, I think the rumors of possible uh, 
dismissal of Chair Powell would be devastating in an economic and financial sense, uh, devastating in a political sense, and in a legal and legislative sense. Um, and, you know, I would point out that the rumors came to a boil uh, Friday and over the weekend, but this has been a year-long uh, consistent attack by the president on his uh, hand-selected appointed Fed chair. Does the attack that the president make makes, uh, is, is it worth noting that it is about an action rather than about a person? Well, I think the, uh, the consistent attacks all year have come in concert with the Fed's decision to continue normalizing interest rates. Um, you guys both know that there are rarely immaculate tightenings. Um, it's very hard to raise interest rates and even harder to do it when you yeah. don't have the kind of political cover. Um, and I think that's made Jay Powell and his colleagues on the oh. FOMC made their job much harder. Do you look at this with your scholarship with Sarah Binder? Do you look at this as a one-off in that this debate about independence goes away with this unique president? Or is there, is there something new going on here? where we're really going to get back to a protracted debate about the independence of the central bank? I, I think that's a great question, Tom. And I think the myth of independence, the book that Sarah and I wrote, really traced uh, the 100-year history. Yeah. The 105th birthday was just yesterday uh, of the Federal Reserve. Um, keep in mind something that Ben Bernanke told Janet Yellen or gave advice to Janet Yellen on his uh, last press conference. He said, remember incoming Chair Yellen, Congress is our boss. Uh, I think you, uh, you, you heard Richard Shelby, uh, former chair of the Senate Finance Committee, supporting uh, Chair Powell over the weekend. We know through good reporting by your Bloomberg colleagues that Jay Powell has spent a lot of time, uh, quote, uh, wearing out the carpets on Capitol Hill. Um, so I think he recognizes the, really the complexities of what the president seems to have threatened or proffered, the idea of dismissing him. It's not clear that that would be within the law, and, Tim, back to your point, I think markets, uh, markets have listened to the president for the last few months, and I think some of, uh, some of the president's criticisms have made it very tricky to or, or made it more complicated for the Fed to, uh, to gain that credibility in normalizing rates. Uh, well, uh, just, uh, just to sort of continue on that theme, Mark Spindel, the decision to raise interest rates was unanimous. It wasn't just a decision on the part of Jerome Powell. All of President Donald Trump's federal board appointees and also the five Reserve Bank presidents, they all cast a vote in favor of raising rates. Absolutely. I think that unanimity was an important uh, uh, full-throated support for Chair Powell and their decision. Again, if we look back <clears throat> over 2018, uh, most of us in the market expected, the Fed expected that they would raise rates four times, and indeed they did. Uh, I think what may be happening uh, in, uh, in investors' minds is a year ago we were enjoying a monotonic rise in equities. Volatility was at uh, generational, oh, like if yeah. not uh, yeah. historical lows. Money was free. Real interest rates were zero or lower. So life is good. The Fed, it's a wonderful life. Sorry, it's a wonderful life. See, he, why, he really wants to do his Jimmy Stewart in, impersonation. All yours. Um, no. uh, I, I think investors have to wrestle with this normalization, that money is no longer free, right. that volatility is normalizing, and the Fed is going about no. this, uh, uh, this course of action very methodically. I'm so glad we had you on. Mark Spindle, thank you so much. The myth of independence 
was a very important book when it came out. It goes back, I think, at Bremer's one volume on William McChesney Martin, but the myth of independence really summed it all together. Mark Spindell writing with Sarah Binder and joins us this morning. Christopher Rohn yeah. with us with Strategic In 3D. In 3D. We're thrilled to have him with us to talk about support and resistance. The great conundrum, uh, Christopher, is always within a bull market, in a rollover. If I look at a monthly chart, I'm still not to support, I guess, on Standard & Poor's 500. Have we broken into a bear market or is it an intermediate bear trend in an overall bull market? Which is it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's an intermediate bear trend, uh, a cyclical drawdown, a cyclical bear market, still in the context uh, of a secular bull move. But that doesn't make it uh, any better. Uh, and anytime there's a drawdown of this magnitude, it hurts. And I think we've seen that. You know, something like 65% of all stocks in the S&P are already down 20. So it's been a meaningful decline internally. And I think we need to recognize that takes time to repair, that takes time to fix. And that yeah. process is still very much in front of us uh, into the first part I, of 2019. I would point out, Pim, that this great debate of an intermediate bear market within a bull trend always indicates stress and emotion along the way. Oh, yes. A lot of stress, a lot of emotion. Let's get specific with uh, Christopher Verone. The bank stock bounce, is it going to happen? Well, I think when we just look broadly, whether it's banks or industrials or the types of stocks that have been penalized to the greatest extent over the last number of months, there are certainly price extremes that are in place right now that would support some type of relief or some type of bounce as we move into the first part uh, of next year. But we need to remember the context of those bounces are ones in downtrends. And when we're in a downtrend, the bar is simply higher to put in a strategic bottom or a durable low, uh, and that's going to take work in front of us. Now, Tom, I think you mentioned stress and fear. Those are two important inputs in how we try to characterize what good lows are made of. And I think yeah. one of the interesting data points from last week, you actually had some of the highest put call readings, so some of the highest spikes in put volume that we've seen in several decades. So finally, there is some right. sense of stress in the system. That's important. Yeah, let me let me translate this, Pim. I think it's important. Puts folks are where you're betting on the market south, calls it betting on the market north. And as Mr. Verone says, there was a preponderance of southedness to the markets uh, last week, Pim. Well, you know, just to go back to the bank stock issue, is this mean based on your work that you should get out? Should you start buying? Or is there something more at work here? Because, you know, you talk about putting sure. in a bottom, but you could also make the case that you should sell every rally. Yeah, and I, I think that's the case that, that we're trying to make here, that when you're in these downtrends, uh, rallies, especially the first rallies, are more likely to fail. And while there's certainly some capitulative signals from the banks over the last couple of weeks, last week, for example, we had one of the highest readings in the number of stocks making a 52-week low in the bank sector. Those can be initial signs that you're close to some capitulative phase, but ultimately those first rallies do tend to fail. Now, I think the way the banks trade here is also indicative 
that there may be something out there that we just don't know about yet. Is there a leveraged or a speculative player that's offside? Yeah. Is there a corporate that's offside? Well, it has the ring or the smell of some type of financial event. To, to tie this then into your reading of short-term charts, uh, Mr. Mnuchin's on the phone to six bankers. I don't know if he called Jason Trenner, but, <laughs> but you know, Secretary Mnuchin's out there doing his thing. Do you see within two-year paper, et cetera, et cetera, charts that indicate the angst that the secretary was calling upon. Yeah, well, the secretary didn't call me, Tom, uh, unfortunately. But uh, here's what we know. We know when we look at the bond market in particular, particularly credit, uh, the movement over the last week or so I think is reflective of a leveraged player that's been caught uh, offsides. And I think as a consequence of that, um, it's unlikely that we're through this period of deleveraging just yet. I would what is a leveraged know, player we, offsides? Most of our audience are like, what's he talking about, the Chicago Browns, or there Cleveland is Browns? A corporate, or there is uh, someone caught on the wrong side of a trade here, uh, and they have to be the seller of kind of last resort. They have to sell what they can, not what they want to. And I think that explains last week they hit the best stocks the Microsoft, the Adobe, all the names that have been best all year led to the downside last week. That is a sign that people are selling what they can, not what they want to. Selling what you can, yeah. not what Let's you want Let's leave it there. To. Chris Verone, thank you so much for Strategas today. Pim, that's an incredible insight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.